Uh, tonight is Wednesday. It is March 3rd, 2010. Our, uh, our message tonight is uh, going to be off its axis. Off its axis. Turn with me to Luke 14. Tell me when you're there. Luke 14. Luke 14. Not U 14, but Luke 14. And turning to them, he said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, his wife and children, his brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Uh, that's probably not up there in the most politically correct statements that was ever made. Huh? Probably you don't hear a lot of sermons preached on that topic. It's uh, definitely not how to win friends and influence people or build bigger gymnasiums to hand out more donuts in. What you need to know about the background of this before we move on is that the Talmud is full, full of examples of people teaching and expounding upon Scripture to say this concept. The relationship that you have between you and your rabbi exceeds that of you and your parents because your parents brought you into this world and your rabbi shows you how to enter into the next world. Jesus was not, uh, obviously, not teaching that he wanted his followers to hate their loved ones. But he's teaching a devotion to be a disciple that places all love, all enthusiasm, all passion for him far above anything else that you have to the point that your love for your loved ones would be hate in comparison. This is a Jewish way of speaking called Calve Comer and it has to do with weighing something light with something heavy to make a dramatic but listen as he goes on. And anyone who does not carry his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. This would be like saying today, if you do not carry an electric chair around with you and be willing to fry yourself regularly, you cannot even be a student of Jesus. And yet somehow or another we have adopted messages that place our comfort over cost. I want to submit to you today... The idea that if we are not experiencing costly salvation, if Jesus is not moving in your life in a way that makes your flesh squirm a little bit, we may have valued comfort more than we have valued cost. If somebody bought you a gift, that would be one thing. Right? And you, you're so thankful for it. If they made you a gift, how do you feel about it? There's a little something special about that. I want to offer the King of Kings... My life in a way that cost me something. Not in a way that simply comforted me. Now this goes against every grain that we have because every television commercial, every radio station, every billboard tells you that you deserve better, more, now. Never mind the fact that you're 8% of the world that has automobiles and the other 92% doesn't. Never mind the fact that you have clean water every day and millions of people don't. Never mind the fact that most of the world lives on less than a dollar a day. We deserve more. I want to give you a word today. This is the earth is so laden with guilt, it's literally being rocked on its axis. And I will show you that. I'll show you it in the word and in today's news. The only cure is a reckless abandonment of all caution, all comfort, a radical faith that leaves nothing in reserve for the trip home because you are an alien and a stranger in this world. 
Suppose one of you wants to build a tower, will he not first sit down and estimate the cost to see if he has enough money to complete it? How is it that before we're saved, we're supposed to count the cost? And then, in every difficult decision, we find ourselves recounting it. The die was supposed to be cast. The moment that you were baptized, you were pledging that you would die for the faith. Die. It's actually the story of a missionary who goes out into a stream with two of the uh, indigenous peoples. The water was swift, so the missionary took a spear and jammed it into the water, into the bank, so that they could hold on to it while they were standing there. He didn't know it, but the spear went through the man's foot that he was going to baptize. He didn't flinch and he didn't move. He thought it was part of the ceremony. Since Jesus was pierced that he might have life, he thought it was fitting that he would be pierced so that when he came out of that, he would bear a mark of Christ and he would be willing to be pierced. How many of you would be baptized if that was required? I'm certainly not advocating. I don't even own the spear. But we need to examine what we think about our comfort and his cost and his comfort and our cost. Young lady in the church brought me a quote from a book I gave her. Said, "What if the God of all comfort wants you to be uncomfortable?" What a great thought! For if he lays the foundation and is not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule him, saying, "This fellow began to build and was not able to finish." If you begin to build a tower, what do you have to do? All of your resources, period, everything that you have goes into finishing it, or else you open yourself up to ridicule, scorn. I mean, isn't that pretty clear from this? I come from a town where a man had public sin to the point where a project that he began building for the whole world to see still lies uncompleted to this day. The lost people call it a memorial to the woman that the man uh, committed sin with. And Christians have to duck their head when they go down the road because there begins a tower that a man began to build and did not finish because selfishness, sin. God in the way. Before you throw any stones at that man, if you happen to know who he is, I'm curious what unfinished towers lie in the recesses of your heart. How many times did you pledge something to Jesus only to crawfish on your pledge? How much of your life is actually in his hands and how much is in your own? Suppose a king was about to go to war against another king, will he not first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he's not, he will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. In the same way, any of you who does not give up everything he has cannot be my disciple. If you are going to war, how much of your resources do you commit to winning? As many as it takes. Because you don't want to lose, right? Your life is on the line. These examples were there, and you know what there is not? The word willing is nowhere in there. And yet when we read this, in the same way any of you that does not give up everything he has cannot be my disciple, our commentaries, our great teachers, soften the blow. What we're told is if you're not willing to give up everything, you can't be his disciple. I want to point out to you, No matter how you try to spin your exegesis, the word willing is not in the passage. What do we do with that? Look at the two examples. You're in a war. You're in a building project. And every resource in your life has to go towards completing that project. Every resource, period. Nothing held in reserve. Say, well, Lord, when do you want it and how do you want it? 
Well, that's up to him. But the moment that there are things in your life that don't belong to him, that you hold in reserve, not all of you is in his kingdom. I don't know any other ways I can preach this message. I've been preaching it now every week in a different way, and all I can tell you is the Spirit keeps showing me to preach it. I heard something today and made me want to go to Isaiah. Turn to Isaiah 24. If you're a guest here tonight and you're nervous that I'm preaching a fundraising message, we don't even pass a plate. Okay, so I'm literally talking least of all about your money. If you can't even put your money in the kingdom, there's no chance you'll put your skin in it. None. Did you hear me? If you sit in here tonight a thief in the house of God, robbing him of what is his, there is no chance you will bleed for him. If you can't separate yourself from the amount of his abundance that he's given you, there is no chance you'll give your life for him. You're deceived. I just want to tell you that right out. Deceived. The good news is you can choose not to be this moment. But again, we're not passing a plate. That's not the point. I want your life, not your money. He wants your life, not your money. Isaiah 24, I don't have time to read. I want to show you a verse in it. Verse 20. The earth reels like a drunkard. It sways like a hut in the wind. So heavy upon it is the guilt of its rebellion that it falls never to rise again. This literally speaks during a time period, 740 B.C., where the scientific community was convinced the earth was at best flat. And yet, it's reeling and swaying like a drunkard under the weight of its guilt. I can't think of a time in human history where you could precisely say that the earth was swaying or reeling before right now. And yet, National Geographic published an article in yesterday's papers, and you can Google it right now, that the earth moved during that earthquake on Chile at least three inches. It actually changed the length of the day, and the headline said, Earth rocked. On its axis. Earth rocked on its axis. What are you saying, Eric? Are you teaching about eschatology tonight? Not at all. I'm telling you that our planet is so laden with guilt, so burdened under the frustration that has been placed upon it, that we're literally hearing birth pains all around us, and nobody has the courage to say, that's God. What's happening is the judgment of God upon the guilt of the world. Instead... We dismiss every natural disaster as something merely scientific. Well, when the Word says that there will be earthquakes, when the Word speaks of natural disaster and kingdom rising against kingdom, what do you do with that? Can anybody deny with tsunamis and earthquakes and everything that's happening that it's possible that God might be trying to get our attention? I lived in Louisiana. I was warned every year. Every year, there's going to be a hurricane come up the mouth of Mississippi. It will flush New Orleans like a toilet. It happened. Nobody wants to call it God. Nobody wants to call it God. In fact, a few preachers who stand up and do are publicly scorned and ridiculed. Where are the prophets? Say, but a lot of good people were hurt. Sin always affects good people. You go as Achan's family, who had nothing to do with the stealing of the gold wedges, how they feel about his sin, and if sin hurts good people... <coughs> The earth is reeling on its axis under the weight. What is your life doing? Is your life destined towards a point? Is there a culmination of the ages in your future? 
Are you walking out your walk with God in a determined way that builds the tower, wins the war? Are you swaying all over the place like a drunken man because you do not have the foundations right? You're swaying on your axis. What a great question. If you don't stop and ask it now, it may be asked of you when it is too late. I wish I didn't have this ministry. I don't look for the opportunity to get nose to nose with people and confront them. And yet, it's what saved my life. So I can't help but do it. I am so proud of you. There are so many people in here that have selflessly given of their lives in unimaginable ways. The poorest people in this church fund our missions more than those of you with hundreds of thousands of dollars in accounts. Isn't that amazing? And it's always been this way. I was a part of a church where teenage boys gave 60 and 70% of their paychecks to support a pastor. And men that lived in Country Club of Louisiana and had the finest everything couldn't manage to give 10%. But they were blessed, right? Well, in the end, I've watched those teenage boys become pastors all over the United States. Well, those rich old men just got more cosmetic surgeries and got weirder and weirder and weirder. Where do you want to invest? And what does your life look like before God? Turn with me to Zechariah 4. Zechariah takes place... 586 B.C. was a Babylonian captivity. It lasted about 70 years. And the book of Zechariah takes place immediately after its close. Tell me when you're there. It's taken Pastor a while to find Zechariah. In the fourth chapter of Zechariah, people quote this all of the time. You'll see it on shirts. You'll see it on bumper stickers. But I wonder how many have taken the time to consider what exactly it means. Can you imagine the devastation that came upon Jerusalem? That on the ninth of Av, the temple was ransacked, burned. Foreign armies carried off the articles that belonged to God. People were taken into captivity. The Bible even speaks of pregnant women whose bodies were abused. What a devastating sight. It's not just something that you read about in history. It's like the Holocaust. It's one of those, oh, please don't make me look moments. They're recovering from that. The obstacle is amazing. It is huge beyond belief and there is no temple and they must build it. I want to talk to you about your tower. I want to talk to you about your army. I want to talk to you about the axis of your life. Verse uh, 6. So he said to me, this is an angel speaking, to Zerubbabel. This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty. Our churches get together, our believers get together, and we look and we examine the world and we say it's subject to frustration. Our teenagers are going to hell in a handbasket. Our divorce rate is that of the world. It's going to hell in a handbasket. How do we fix it? Then we get together in little committees and we come up with new programs. New ways to raise money. New ways to restate the same tired old goals. New slides and new ways. New PowerPoints. It is not by your might. It is not by your power that you can affect change in your life. Let's be honest. How many times have you, by the sheer force of your discipline, decided you will never do something again, only to have done it again? How many times have you promised, Lord, in that moment, I will whatever. 
and you weren't able. It will, there's not a program on earth that can save you. There's not a denomination on earth that can save you. There is one gut-wrenching reality, and that's that if you do not enter into God's presence through the perforated body of His Son, if you don't get filled to all the fullness of God with His Spirit, you have no hope. You have none. You can make up all of the doctrines that sound so fancy, so beautiful. You can get promised that you will never see suffering and ignore all the suffering on the planet today that goes on among Christians. And Matthew 24 still says the love of most will grow cold. And only he who stands firm to the end will be saved. When we can't sit in a service without looking at our watches, because we've just got so much that is so important to do, Get home, watch American Idol. What do you think that God says about that? When the best we can do is start a new program, friends, there's one answer to our problem. We must fall on our face and say, will you fill me with your substance, Lord? Some of you crazy charismatics say, God filled. I, listen, I speak in other tongues. My four-year-old daughter speaks in other tongues. So what? This is a beginning. It's a minor beginning, a small beginning. It's the least thing that you can do is begin to yield the rudder of your ship to Him. We must be being filled or we have no hope to stand in that day. We can look all around us and say, no, it's unrelated. Hades presidential palace in rubble. 1,000 dump trucks over 1,000 days cannot clear it. But I mean, it's, it's just a natural thing. We can look and see that the seventh largest earthquake that the world's history has ever known occurs and it rocks the earth on its axis at least three inches and say, oh, it's just natural. You can see that a nation that flaunts its depravity before God, its major ports, are underwater and say, oh, it's just natural. Or you might wake up and say, I feel birth pains. Well, what is supposed to be being birthed? Turn with me to Romans. Pastor, can't you just preach something nice? Man, you can go to any church on this street and hear that you're a wonderful human being. <coughs> Secretly, you're addicted to porn. Secretly, you wish you were married to a different man. Secretly, your kids are going to hell in a handbasket, but your house is pretty and the yard's cut right and you wear the right clothes. You've got the right bumper sticker on your car, maybe. Maybe you have a Christian wardrobe. Let me ask you something. Are you dripping with His Spirit? When you move to the left or right, is He what sloshes out of you? Because this is the mark of a Christian. As many as are led by the Spirit are the sons of God. Not as many as who once spoke in other tongues. Not as many as who ascended to a particular creed. Not as many as who showed up and put their butts in a seat. As many as are led by His Spirit. And His Spirit always leads you in a way that costs you something. Look how He led our King. What's the first example of Jesus being led? That's right, into the desert, into temptation. Forty days without food, battling demonic powers, warring against his very flesh. But I'm sure he just leads you into blessing after blessing. Usually when people are going to get married, they want to get to know each other. Right? 
I mean, we don't have arranged marriages here. But we think that the culmination of the ages and your marriage to the King of Kings is going to happen without you ever being in situations where he gets to examine your heart. Where he gets to see what his bride is like. Instead, we wrap doctrines around ourselves that say, oh, he knows everything. If he does, do you? That's a better question. Are you really dependent upon him? Or do you out of one side of your mouth say the Lord will provide and out of the other side of your mouth bite off your fingernails down to the skin? Deuteronomy 8 says that he humbled the people of Israel, causing them to hunger, to test them in order to know what was in their heart. Put that in your theology book. You don't find that in anybody's doctrinal statement. I wonder why. Oh, well, that's old. It's old. Well, how is the cross at this point? I got more than a couple thousand years. Hmm. He's getting to know his bride. And the way that he knows his bride is we are purified in difficult situations. Those that love him, he showers grace and mercy upon. He causes you to shine. He presents you to his father pure and spotless. But there is someone who tries to function like a bride. There is someone that dresses maybe in the right clothes. Maybe the right gender. But secretly she's married to the world and the Bible calls her the whore of Babylon. We would never say that any of our pretty church people are the whore of Babylon and yet the love of most grows cold. So they must all be hiding in some other country where life's easy, right? If you had to put your money on someone that looked like the church but was not the church, where would you put it? You think it's the Chinese Christians? They pull out their toenails for going to meetings. Oh, I know it's the Christians in the Sudan, right? Because they crucify them there. Wonder who it is. I know this. I don't want it to be us. Listen to what the world is waiting to give birth to. This is uh, Romans 8. Start with me in 18. I consider that our present sufferings... What, Paul? You must have been in sin. What, what did you have sufferings for? My God, Paul, if you just understood the rapture, God wouldn't beat his bride. Never mind the fact that his bride is Israel, and she's taken a pretty good licking through the years. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. The creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. The earth is grumbling under the weight of its sin, waiting for the sons of God to be revealed. It's literally quaking. The plates are shifting on one another and there's a grinding that's occurring while men go to hell under the weight of their sin. And what does the creation that is subjected to frustration wait for? To find out which of you are really sons of God. How do you know a son of God? Somebody who is led by His Spirit in supernatural ways. Where are we when most of our churches for a more dignified form of worship, refuse to let any spiritual things happen. It's like the sons of God put on disguises. They're incognito. <coughs> or maybe they're just sons of God in name only. What are you? What does the evidence of your life say? Does His Spirit bear witness with you that you are His? That you're holy, His? W-H-O, holy, His? Where does that message leave you? Or is there a part of your life you'd be embarrassed for your pastor to see? 
there a part of your life that if it was played on these screens, you'd be ashamed of? The most wholesome thing that you can do before your God is admit your weakness before He exposes it. Ask for His help and say, It'll never be by my might, never by my power. If you don't fill me with your Spirit, I have no hope. Because that's a vessel that He can fill. What do you think it means when we sing, Empty me? Empty me as long as it leaves me comfortable. Empty me as long as it doesn't cost me anything. Empty me as long as it doesn't hurt. I don't have to suffer. There are no problems. Empty me as long as I don't have to do anything different tomorrow than today. Lord, I warm to seek great. Empty me is a painful process. It's a cutting away, a circumcising of your heart. It's a, I thought we were good in this area. And the Spirit says, not so fast. What about this? And you go, oh, no, no, really? You were serious about that, Lord? Please don't make me... Yes, sir. And then you feel His approval. Last time that I was fasting and praying about something else, God spoke to me about old business associates. And I'm like, you're kidding? These people stole money from me. Stole money from Mandy. What? Lord, I'm pretty sure I'm right here. He doesn't care whether you're right or not. He cares about His kingdom. And my rights don't figure into it. When is the last time you walked by a cemetery and heard a dead man calling out about his rights? Oh, you forgot. You're all supposed to have died in Christ. You have no rights. You have a right to the presence of God. And that's it. But let me ask you, what wouldn't you trade to be in the presence of God 100% of the time? So what keeps you from it now? The creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. The whole creation that is experiencing these difficulties, the whole creation that is experiencing these rumblings and this birth pain, is, this happens, these difficult times happens, so that they'll look up and say, I heard Angie talk about Jesus. Is there anything really different about her? I heard Brandon say he goes to church. What does that really mean? The frustration is supposed to drive us to look for liberation. Well, let me ask you, when people see your life, is it liberation or is it just more religious bondage? Well, I don't do this and I don't do that, and so I'm sure it makes me better than them. Oh, I'm sure it does. Or do they see somebody that is liberated to do anything that God would tell them to do, no matter how silly, no matter how foolish? No matter what it costs them. I want to submit to you the idea today that our churches have not done a good job preparing people to be led of the Spirit in any direction. We've been so concerned with our image to the point where we have to sit around and debate whether you have to wear a tie or a ridiculous collar. We sit around and debate whether it is wine or grape juice as if the most pressing matter upon the planet today was fermentation. <laughs> so we will stand before the king and say, we got the fermentation issue right! But we did nothing. Never was there a time our heart beat fast and we went over and spoke of you and saw Satan's kingdom fall from someone's life. 
because we remain comfortable in our doctrine, in our churches, in our comfort zone. I want to tell you, I don't care what you eat or drink. The kingdom of God is not a matter of such things. But I care when the Spirit speaks, do you move or do you form a committee? I care very, very much about when it hurts you, will you do it? Or only when it's blessing you. Because the heart of God cares. My children are perfectly <laughs> obedient when I tell them to eat ice cream. Broccoli is a different story. How would you fall into that category? We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. The whole world can lead you astray. They can tell you, the worldly church can tell you that the goal and plan of God is to go to heaven, but it is not what the Word says. The Word says that you've been given a down payment of the Spirit. And now your body itself is groaning. When we pray for our brother Paul to have healing in his body, his body is groaning under the weight of sin in the world, but he has a deposit of the Spirit. And it is a down payment that he will be adopted in a very real physical sense as he is glorified with the King of Kings in a body that never dies. It is the Gospel that Paul taught. It is the gospel that the apostles taught. And the world is looking, waiting for us to be revealed. Will your life keep it a secret up to that very moment? Or will it loudly display, boldly display, that you love Jesus enough to be led of Him in any direction, no matter where, no matter how, because it is such an easy thing to say. Any of you who will not give up everything cannot be my disciple. Well, he must mean that you must be willing. Really? Is your knife in the air over your side? Because that's the other example that's used. Friends, we need, to, we need to get real. If you can't turn off the television and pray, and you can't get your hindquarters out of bed in the morning to spend time with him in the Word, and you can't even show up to church on time, and you're pretty good with temptation as long as there is no opportunity. Then probably you would not give up everything and follow him. You cannot be his disciple if you won't give up everything and follow him. What holds you back? As I get before the presence of God now having been in him 17 years, been preaching most of those. I mean, it's unfortunate that threw me behind a pulpit from day one. I wish that wasn't the case. It's caused me a lot of hardship. I still, when I fall on my face before Him, I still find areas of my life that don't yet belong to Him. So that's alright. I mean, we're all just sinners saved by grace. No, you are called to be a saint. The Word says, Be holy as I am holy. Quit making excuses for being the way you are and radically cut away whatever does not belong. Well, Pastor, I just have this problem with my computer. Run it over with your car. Tear it out. Destroy it. But that's, that's just, I mean, do you know how costly that would be? Not nearly as costly as going to hell. And I don't care how many six-foot icicles stand behind boxes that look like this, that we call pulpits, and tell you you won't. Jesus gave every parable He gave to people that thought they were saved. 
What do you think the words meant? Not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, shall enter my kingdom, but only he who does the will of my Father. I sat in a church not all that much different than this one, just prettier and with more expensive things, and realized there was no chance, no way on earth you could twist the truth into making anyone believe I was doing God's will. And I fell on my face and said, change me. And he began his life-changing process. Where do you stand with that? Turn with me to Matthew 25. I got two more scriptures for you. But I'm not going to apologize for how long it takes me to read them to you. If you don't care about this, you can leave now. It's okay. You, you can see we're not interested in building numbers. I'm interested in seeing people really change. All I have to do is give away gift certificates or something or have a new slideshow or smoke show or whatever ridiculous antics that the church goes to to draw more lost people to stay lost in their services. But I'm interested in those that want the Holy Spirit's scalpel to work in their heart and their life. That are willing to be cut to the core and not ask the question, what must I believe? But like the Jewish believers did when Peter preached, they said, what must I do? See, what should be going through your mind right now is what can I do tomorrow to show that I'm all in and none is left out all in? Not for them to see. Not for me to see. For Jesus to see. How can you show Him? Somebody told me today, I have a much easier time serving when I'm a part of a group. I have a much easier time serving when I'm around other people. Amen, we've all been there. And yet, if you will not do it when it is just you and Jesus, who are you serving and why? Maybe you're working for the affection of your peers. Maybe you're working for the adoration and the praise of the brothers. I want the praise of the Father. And He's most interested in the things I do when no one is looking. I once read that integrity is what you do when no one else is around. How are you doing with your integrity? You can hallelujah with the best of them. But what is your heart like? How mad are you at me? Or the person sitting on the left of you or right of you? Our king says if you don't forgive, you cannot be forgiven. And yet people walk around with decades of unforgiveness towards parents in their life. It's, it's, it's such an epidemic that you can almost walk up to anybody and say, how mad are you at your parents? Oh, I've forgiven them. I just don't ever want to see them again. I've forgiven them as long as, you know, they're not around. They're not here, are they? He doesn't care whether you're right or not. I find myself taking trips to North Houston to go seek out my parents. Say, hey, hey, love you. you know? Say, but what about this? What about that? The king doesn't care. He cares about his kingdom. You need to be revealed as a son of God. And if you don't do anything different than what the world does, you are no better than the world. Matthew 25. At that time, the kingdom of heaven will be like... Most of the parables that you hear Jesus say, say the kingdom of heaven. What shall I compare it? I know it's like yeast that a woman was working through. What is the kingdom of heaven like? I know it's like a net that was let down into the sea. But I can think of no other times in which the word says, what will the kingdom be like? Do you hear the difference? One is what is the kingdom like? Another is what will the kingdom be like? From Jesus speaking, this was a future thing. I wonder whose future... He was talking about. At that time, the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps 
and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish, and five were wise. The foolish ones took their lamps, but did not take any oil with them. The wise, however, took oil in jars along with their lamps. The bridegroom was a long time in coming, and they became drowsy and fell asleep. <laughs> well, I always heard that when you became a bride and bridegroom, you got all the oil you'd ever get. Just by virtue of being a bride and bridegroom. Then why share these parables? Why sit around and write books and argue about whether or not you can be baptized in the Holy Ghost when all around you are people that are baptized in the Holy Ghost? I went to meet with my pastor. He said, son, you need to understand. God doesn't do this anymore. I said, pastor, the problem is, is he did it last night. So I, I understand you've never seen it, but now that you have, we're good. Well, well, you see, you, you want to stay within the denominational shackles that I've accepted. Why? So we can boast 900, but maybe 90 saved? Why? I went to a, the largest private Christian school in my state, and I don't know 10 Christians in it. Not 10. The largest private Christian school. And I, I, I don't think we could name 10 sincere born-again, lifestyle-showing-it believers in the whole school during the time we were there. And of all of them, I was by far the worst. So why again did we place comfort over cost? Well, I guess because it was comfortable. I want to submit to you that these bridegrooms are in a position. They're in a position of, of testing. And the testing is, if I delay in gratifying you immediately... If I don't give you the comfort you seek right away, will you still serve me? Will you still go back and seek more and more and more of me, readying yourself for my coming? Or do you give up when you don't get what you want at the next window? Sounds like he's testing you to know what's in your heart. I'm asking you, how full is your lamp? Do we really have to stretch the boundaries of the Word to understand that the oil is the Holy Spirit? I mean, is that really a hard thing to to get to since every Israelite knew what it was to have a first, second, third, fourth pressing of olives. They lit everything in the temple. They were the anointing of kings, the anointing of prophets, the healing of sheep, all of those. Do, do we really have to go through all that and debate it? Not if you have eyes to see. You know, we're in a season of weddings. In the Jewish wedding, these two would have had their parents meet. Kelsey would have walked out to Mandy publicly and held up a glass of wine. He would have quoted Exodus 6-6 six, six to her. I'll free you from your present life. I'll change the way that you live. I'll take you to be my treasured possession. And you'll live with me always. The same things that God told Israel coming out of Egypt. If she accepted, she accepted by drinking the glass of wine with him. And they entered into a communal covenant. They weren't married yet because he had not yet built onto his family dwelling in a way that was satisfactory. Now that he had obtained the promise of a bride, they lived as if they were married separately, meaning that there was no going back on their promise. 
Your family dwelling was called an insula. It was tied to a specific area of Israel because if you were from a tribe, your tribal inheritance was in an area. So you went back, Kelsey Wood, to his father's house. And he said, Daddy, I'm beginning building because I'm going to go get my bride. He wouldn't know the day or hour he could go get her because it was up to his daddy when the insula had been built upon in the way that was satisfactory. The oldest living member of the family got to make that choice. Which meant Mandy wouldn't know when he was coming for her. So a tradition began. A tradition that Jesus is talking about. Brides that were eager, that didn't see it as simply a family obligation, part of a ketubah, a marriage contract. Brides that wanted to be married and loved their husbands. Lit lamps and put them in the window. So that whether he came during the day or the night, she would be easy to find. And he always came with the blowing of shofars to get his bride. Our king is building a royal dwelling that is your glorified body. Not a mansion in the sky. Jesus never heard of a mansion, never knew what a mansion was, never used the word mansion. Had no concept of southern antebellum homes. <laughs> Instead, he was building you a glorified body that you could dwell in the presence of God forever and He was coming to get you. Here's the kicker. He only wants the bride that is full of the oil that He told her about. He wants the bride that is eager. The one that wants Him. Not the one that just wants to do the minimum. Not the one that is just willing to fulfill the religious obligation. He wants the one that wants Him. All of Him. This is Isaac's bride, Rebecca, who went down to the water and watered all ten camels. Is the one that went the extra mile because had a heart to serve God. This is the bride. Let me ask you, how hard do you think that will be to find in America? The bride of Christ in America says, in what way can you more bless me, Jesus? How can you enrich me? To help with all those people suffering. The blessings you gave me are mine and I get mine. <laughs> How about that? Let's go to Acts 8. We're going to close with Acts 8. I want to talk to you about a man who did this the right way. There. I want to talk to you about a man who was known to be full of the Spirit. A man who loved Jesus enough that wherever Jesus' spirit said go, he went. Whatever Jesus' spirit said he was, he was. If the spirit said he was righteous, he was righteous. If the spirit said, I want you to speak to this one, he spoke to this one. A man in whom you could see the leading of God's spirit. This is what we are supposed to be. This is not a special class of people. This is not somebody... Uh, especially called to a particular ministry in the church far and away above you. This is what your life is supposed to look like. It's what you are to endeavor to do. I want you to notice that there are no committee meetings for his decisions. There are no church buses to pick him up. There are no special robes for him to wear. There are no holy foods for him to eat or unholy foods for him to abstain from. There are no semblances of man-made religion. What there is, is an unwavering obedience to God's Spirit. This would be the 26th verse. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, 
Was Philip an apostle? <clears throat> Philip ends up, I mean, he begins his relationship with us in the book of Acts as somebody who served bread at a table. One of seven men who were deemed full enough of the Holy Ghost to hand out bread to Greek widows. Now later his function calls him other things, like an evangelist. The point is he was not handed from a business, a business card from the sky that says this is what you are, now act like it. Instead he received a supernatural deposit of the Holy Ghost and he lived in obedience to it. I didn't need you to call me a pastor to know I was a pastor. That's why I don't require it when I speak to you. That's why I introduced myself as Eric. It's what my mother called me, at least on good days. What I am and what you are should be evident from the life that you live. It should be evident from the life that you live, and if it's not, change your life. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Go south to the road, the desert road, that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. <laughs> Lord, have you seen the Gaza Strip lately? This is before that, I'm kidding how many of you have ever experienced a time in your life when you stepped outside and said, Okay, Lord, where do you want me to go? It happens. But it's a rarity for us, isn't it? Instead, we wake up with our list, our plan, our schedule, and we say, Okay, Lord, I want you to bless me while I go do the things that I want to do. What must Philip's life have been like to hear an angel say, Look, I want you to go to this road, not that road, this road, and head south on. What must his life have been like? Doesn't that sound like he has a relationship with Jesus? Doesn't that sound like there's some back and forth? He didn't just go to a book and go, uh, yeah, rule 3A. Sounds like there was a real relationship. Look at the fruit of it. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Go south to the road, the desert road, that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he started out and on his way. There was no discussion of why go. There was no uh, debate about the efficacy of the direction that he was choosing. There was no consulting of an almanac to see whether there was a sufficient population to support his ministry in that area. There was no papering the neighborhood with flyers. There's no statistical analysis. There was obedience to what an angel told him. Did it say the angel appeared to him in the flesh? Doesn't say it. Does it say that he saw a vision from the sky? Doesn't say it. We don't know how loud or how faint this was. What we know is that whatever it was, Philip's life was conditioned to be obedient when the Spirit spoke. So he started out and on his way he met an Ethiopian eunuch an important official in charge of all the treasury of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians. Before we move on to anything else here, let's say that the Spirit tells you to go somewhere. So you're at the George R. Brown, right? Because that's where the Spirit says go. While you're there, you look up and you see an important official. How excited are you about running up to an important official? What are you filled with immediately? Do you have a little fear? Do you have a little insecurity? Am I the only one here whose knees tremble a little bit at the thought of uh, encounters like this? Okay, well, Matt says I'm not, so praise God. Matt and I are the only two weak ones in the room. 
We know how this story turned out. Right? And we're benefited by that as we read it. Imagine what it was like for Philip. I hope I heard from you right, Lord. I'm heading south on the road and I'm starting on my way. Oh, Lord have mercy. This is an important guy. It's an important guy. Now, what do you do at that point? Probably speaking, Lord, if you wanted me to go to him, you'd really have him get down out of the chariot and come to me. Lord, if you really wanted me to do something, look, write it in the sky. Lord, if you really wanted, prove yourself to me in some way. Is it God that has to prove himself or is it us that has to prove ourselves? What a great question to ask, church. Any of you who does not give up everything cannot be his disciple. And in this moment, Philip gets to crucify his flesh and walk with Jesus towards his chariot. I'm sure it was hard for him. You know what Philip could not know? Imagine this. We know he was an Ethiopian. What's that next word? Hard to say? Eunuch. Not unique. Eunuch. <laughs> Means he sang in a high falsetto. <laughs> you know what Philip could not know that the writer is telling us about? The writer is telling us about his position in life. All Philip would have known is this obviously an important dude. He's got a whole entourage. The Ethiopian is actually struggling with something, though. Can you imagine if your body had been maimed so that you could perform your occupation? How you might feel? Could there be some insecurity in you? Could there be some problem in you? If every time you went to the temple of God because you were a proselyte to Judaism, if every time you went to the temple of God you could only get so close because your body had been mutilated. Do you think he signed up for that, by the way? Do you think he said, look, I could apply at uh, the garbage place, I could apply at the cable company, or I know I could go be emasculated and work uh, in Ethiopia. Come on, probably did not apply for the position. Do you think he could have been dealing with some problems? He couldn't go into the temple. Deuteronomy 23.1 says that if this had been done to you, you could not come into the presence of God. So what is he struggling with? Lord, how close am I able to get to you? Sounds like there might be some frustration there. Despite all of his achievement, despite being surrounded by earthly royalty, he craves something more. But who's going to approach him and tell him? How was the sons of God, how are the sons of God going to be revealed? Well, when they're led by the Spirit, God reveals them. So you know the story, Philip. Moses up to the chariot. It actually says that he ran. Then Philip ran up to the chariot. Did you see that it says in verse 29, the Spirit told Philip, go to the chariot and stay near it? Now we're not saying an angel told him. Now it's not Jesus that told him. It is the Spirit. How uncertain could that be? Did he see the Spirit? The Spirit can't be seen. Did he touch the Spirit? The Spirit can't be touched. Did the Spirit write it in the dust? How did the Spirit speak to him? How many times have I heard the question, Pastor, how do I hear from God? Well, you've got to know Him first. The same God that spoke to you about salvation, the same God that you had an intimate encounter with, you know when He touches you again. Well, Pastor, I don't know if I've ever had that. Then get on your face and get it and quit listening to lying men who want your money. Because Philip knew what it was to be led of the Spirit. When he felt the same presence that he felt in the room with Jesus, when he felt the same presence that raised Jesus from the dead, he knew what that felt like. I'll be honest with you, I know what my wife is thinking most of the time without her opening her mouth. 
she's thinking, oh yeah, look at who I married. I'm kidding. <laughs> I know what she's thinking because I have daily interaction with her. We eat together. We lie down together. We wake up together. We even sometimes stand there and brush our teeth and talk to each other. We do ridiculous things together because we love each other. What is your relationship with Jesus like? I know. You see him twice a week at church, right? And maybe not in some of the churches you go to. Maybe it's just Easter and Christmas. Okay, well maybe it's not at all. What is your relationship like? Would you run up to a chariot that you just knew had some important dude in it and hear this one, stay near it? What does that imply? Maybe this Ethiopian didn't jump down and say, Oh, a young Jewish pauper! Perhaps this guy is showing me the way of salvation! Maybe Philip had to run over there and go, I hope they kind of notice me. Do I talk? The Lord didn't tell me what to do. What do I say? And the chariot driver went, we're going to run over this poor Jew. Would somebody stop and talk to him? I mean, we have no idea what happened. We just know the Spirit said, go and stay near him. But it happened that he was actually searching out Isaiah. He was reading Isaiah and was a humble enough man because of life circumstances that he wanted to know, is this about Isaiah or someone else? And guess who knew? The one who was on a first name basis with Jesus by way of his Spirit. By the way, three chapters after the one that this man is reading, and remember we're in a scroll, there are no chapters. Isn't that nice? God spoke of a day in Isaiah 56 where he said, there's a day coming when a eunuch will not be able to say I'm only a dry tree because I will give you a better name in the house of my God than anyone else gets. I wonder what all Philip showed him. I don't know, but whatever it was, it was led by the Spirit. I want to tell you the earth is rocking on its very axis under the weight of its sin and guilt. You don't have to look very far to see great, great need. What the world is waiting for, though, is for you to stand up and show yourself to be led of His Spirit. His sons, not believing the right things, not abstaining or indulging in the right things. Not bumper sticker Christianity, but instead a real relationship. Then when He says jump, you go... Is that high enough? You don't even wait for further instruction. You just do it. A reckless abandonment of all of your comfort, no matter what the cause. Maybe it's not just the earth that needs to be rocked off its axis a little bit. Maybe it's us. Maybe we feel a little too set in our ways. Our wheels are a little too square. Maybe we're not moving so good when he says move. Maybe we're so used to debate that we don't do anything. Well, I'm telling you, if you don't like the direction of these messages, you're not going to like it at any point in the future. Because not only are we not going to back up, we're going to go further. And it should be a little scary. And you should be a little beat up. And you should go, golly, that's really very serious. And it should make you uncomfortable because it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. And it was not with perishable things that you were purchased. It was a man's life. The least you can do is give him your Right? And how much of it have you already wasted? So let's get pretty serious about it right now. And I want to wager you something. As it gets darker out there and you shine brighter, people will see a greater salvation. But it requires you to do something. You need to give your life away. Y'all stand up and we'll pray. 
when I see marriages breaking out all over the church and hear about babies being born and all of these things, you know what I see? I see God establishing family units that can change the world. If your baby has not come yet, you hang in there. The faithful have always had problems having babies. The devil wants to stop you. Don't give up. If there is anything in your life that's fun to work at, that's it. <laughs> if your spouse hasn't shown up yet, I encourage you, hang in there. God often requires a severe time of testing. He's getting to know you. He's seeing whether you will be faithful. We do what He says. He does not have to do what we say. Your biggest tests don't come when you see people get out of wheelchairs. They come when you pray and you don't see it. If you don't pray, though, I guarantee you, you will never see it. Saints, develop a bold faith. One that will go out and take the city by storm, not because you must, but because you want to be led of His Spirit, and that's what He's showing you to do. Put away your ridiculous religious rules. That one has a hat. He can't be in Christ. That one has an earring. He can't be in Christ. That one drove 56. He can't be in Christ. And listen to what the Spirit says. Listen. He will show you what He wants. He will. i got churches that preach here that preach rapture. And you know, I hate that even the idea. I believe in a resurrection. We have churches that meet here and they push people over. <laughs> we got all kind of crazy things. But you know what? I've learned enough to hear from the Spirit. And these men and their ministries are of God. So there's a little hay that needs to be shoveled out. Is there not in your life and mine too? Let's give God room to work and hear from the Spirit. We've stood in our own trenches too long. We've done it too long. Let's move with God. Amen? Let's pray. Y'all join hands. The Spanish church did something that was awesome. During their worship, they had this little kind of get down song. Yeah, I, 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 somebody had to sing it. And since nobody's stepping forward to do that, I won't know. And they all danced around the room with each other. God, I loved it. I loved it. They all greeted each other with a dance around the room. You know what it reminded me of? Jewish worship. They all danced together. They all danced together. Why don't we do things like that? Well, one reason is because it's kind of uncomfortable. It's different than what we're used to. I'm saying that God might want that. Right? Now, we're not the dancing church. The point is I want to do whatever He wants. Right? Mighty God, Lord, as our hands are joined together, we're asking You would join our hearts together. Lord, that we would be encouraged by the bold tenacity with which our brothers and sisters pursue You. Lord, I'm asking that You would move Beyond our circumstances. We realize that when you tell us to cross the river, it's going to be at flood stage. Lord, in our unbelief, help us. In our fear, Lord, let faith rise. Lord, in spite of our flesh, let us be the sons that you have purchased us to be. Lord, we yield to you now. We confess our weakness. And we ask for your power to be perfectly displayed in it. We're not fighting for the right to be weak. We hate our weakness. But Lord, we're not going to let it keep us from moving in you. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. If you can get to the weddings, get to the weddings. They're beautiful things to see. Amen.